1 Kings chapter 8, verses 22 to 54. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands toward heaven and said, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it, as it is today. Now, Lord, the God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said, You shall never fail to have a successor to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your descendants are careful in all they do to walk before me faithfully as you have done. And now, Lord of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David, my father, come true. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. Lord my God, hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day. This place of which you said, my name shall be there, so that you will hear this prayer. Sorry, hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. When anyone wrongs their neighbour and it is required to take an oath and they come and swear the oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act. Judge between your servants, contemning the guilty by bringing down on their heads what they have done and vindicating the innocent by treating them in accordance with their innocence. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, And when they turn back to you and give praise to your name, praying and making supplication to you in this temple, then hear from Israel and forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them back to the land you gave their ancestors. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray toward this place and give thanks to your name and turn from your sin because you have afflicted them, Then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. When famine or plague comes to the land, or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, or when an enemy besieges them in any of their cities, whatever whatever disaster or disease may come, and when a prayer or plea is made by anyone among your people Israel, being aware of the afflictions of their own hearts and spreading out their hands towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Forgive and act. Deal with everyone according to what to do to all they do, since you know their hearts, for you alone know every human heart, so that they will fear you all the time they live in the land you gave our ancestors. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you, 
so that all peoples on earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel, and may know and may know that this house I have built bears your name. When your people go to war against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord towards the city you have chosen, and the temple I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea, and uphold their cause. When the sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them, and give them over to their enemies who take them captive to their own lands, far away or near, and if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive, and pray to you toward the land you gave their ancestors, towards the city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name, then from heaven your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their plea, and uphold their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Forgive all the offences they have committed against you, and cause their captors to show their mercy. For they are your people and your inheritance, whom you brought out of Egypt, out of that iron-smelting furnace. May your eyes be open to your servant's plea and to the plea of your people Israel. And may you listen to them whenever they cry out to you. For you singled them out from all the nations of the world to be your own inheritance, just as you declared through your servant Moses when you, sovereign Lord, brought our ancestors out of Egypt. When Solomon had finished all these prayers and supplications to the Lord, he rose from before the altar of the Lord, where he had been kneeling with his hands spread out towards heaven. Thank you, Juliet. Hi, everyone. Lovely to see you. Who watched the coronation last night? Hands up. Uh, who didn't watch the coronation last night? Let's. Uh, okay, some of us didn't. Okay, uh, some of us were here. Um, now, for those who did see it, uh, even if you didn't, so here's, I've put some photos um, up on the screen. Um, so there it is. Uh, come to the next one. Did you notice that there was a point in the ceremony they called the most holy, the most sacred part of the ceremony? And they put the screens up and then they took the uh, king behind the screens. Uh, it was sacred, so only the priests and only the king could see what was going on. But that was when he was anointed. Uh, as Solomon was anointed in 1000 BC, so King Charles was anointed with oil, vegan oil, uh, I'm told. Uh, so he's anointed with oil behind the screen in this holy uh, ceremony. Um, and did you notice the song that was su- the sung at that point? Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anointed Solomon king and all the people rejoiced. Um, God save the king, long live the queen. So, so the song that was sung was straight from 1 Kings chapter 1. Uh, and even just, just a really helpful little teaching moment. You know how they anointed him with oil? In Hebrew, the one who is anointed with oil literally means... Uh, is literally the Messiah. So that's what Messiah means. It means the anointed one, one who has had oil poured on his head. 
Uh, and in the Old Testament, that ceremony was an external ceremony that symbolized God's spirit uh, being poured onto this man, uh, David or Solomon or the other kings, to set them apart for the work of God. Uh, and so 3,000 years later, the, the English king, the ceremony or the coronation kind of mirrored uh, what happened with Solomon 3,000 years ago. Uh, the king was, it was, it was an amazingly, like, it was amazing how much Christian symbolism there was in the ceremony, uh, I thought. Um, now, here's a question for you. What did you think of the coronation? So next, next slide. Um, and it's hard to tell from the faces of those in the crowd, but disinterested, ambivalent, or excited. So there's three options. So I want to, so disinterested, you couldn't care less. Were you excited? Uh, or ambivalent means that you kind of can't work out whether you should be excited or disinterested. Right? So that's what ambivalent means. It's kind of, mm, I'm not sure, half-half. So talk to the person next to you. Which of those three would you say best represents you and your uh, attitude to the coronation? And there's no judgment. This is a no judgment space. Okay, so you're ready to vote. I'd love to see your opinions. Um, if, you've too, if you feel like it's too exposing to put your hand up, then you, don't, you can abstain. Uh, but it, it's helpful. I, and as I say, no judgment. Right? There's no judgment about this. Who would say they were excited uh, about the coronation? Okay, right? Uh, who would say disinterested? Okay, similar sort of number, maybe a little bit more disinterested. Who would say they're ambivalent? Okay, okay, so that's the majority of us. Very interesting. Uh, now, we'll explore that uh, later this morning, but um, this morning we're going to hear about the, you know, more about the life of King Solomon. I'd love you to have your Bible open to that passage that uh, Juliet read. We're going to look at chapters 5 to 8, a big chunk, and we're going to consider Solomon's great building project, almost his life's work. His, what he saw as his destiny, to build a temple for God. Uh, and it captured his heart. So Solomon was off the charts excited about this project, and he expected all of God's people to be the same, uh, to be caught up in the joy and excitement of this moment. But we're going to hear about an even greater building project. We're going to hear about Jesus' building project. What, what Jesus is excited about and what Jesus calls on us, because we're not followers of Solomon, are we? We're here because we're followers of Jesus. Uh, and we want to work out what is Jesus captured about? What, what is his great building project? Because he calls on us to get involved, to actually get excited, but also to play our part uh, and to invest ourselves in this great project of Jesus. So let's begin in 1 Kings chapter 6, Solomon's temple way back 3,000 uh, 3, years ago, 1,000 BC. So we're going a long way back in time. Uh, 
Uh, I've got some artistic impressions. So these are modern artistic impressions of Solomon's temple. If you read um, these chapters, uh, there's a lot of detail. But what you go away with, with is a sense of precision, detail and glory. It is a glorious temple. Uh, one of the key words is gold. And gold just keeps coming up again and again. You don't see it so much on the outside because we're looking here on the outside. But once we go inside, so much gold everywhere. Uh, and why gold? Because gold is so precious, but it's also weighty. Uh, and the word glory has this, it, it, it literally means weighty, heavy. Uh, and gold captures glory better than any substance probably Uh, and so that's what they're trying to do with the gold capture the glory of the unseen god and at the consecration ceremony right at the end god's glory will fill this temple so come over to chapter 8 verse 10 see what it says there when the priests withdrew from the holy place the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. Notice no one sees God, just this dark cloud fills the house. Uh, The glory of the Lord fills this space. Now, there's a paradox. Everything about this temple speaks to a paradox. Uh, And let me unpack what this paradox is. You have the holy God and sinful people. And notice how I've drawn them, two circles, and they're kind of pushing apart. You know, what I had in my mind is when you draw two magnets together, but you know when you've got the north and the north, and they kind of repel each other that's what you've got with a holy god and a sinful people and this god is so holy so holy and so perfect that when to come into his presence as ordinary sinful people like us uh, it is it is terrifying it is dangerous even Uh, And so there's a kind of natural repelling of a holy God and a sinful people. So I've got those two questions. How is it possible for a holy God to dwell amongst a sinful people? That is a problem. And how is it possible for sinful people to approach a holy God? That is the paradox at the heart of this building. Now, let me describe the temple. The actual temple, the central building, is called the holy place. Now, on this picture, all the outside stuff, that's the court. But the actual temple is that middle building. And you can even take off those side wings of the building. They're bits that Solomon kind of added. Uh, They're not not the core of the building. So the central temple is called the holy place. And I worked out how big is the holy place. Chapter 6, verse 2. The temple that Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 wide, and 30 high. 
60 by 20 by 30 cubits. Uh, does that help you? Um, now, last week, I asked John Watson, I said, John, can you tell us how big is our hall? And he said, 70 cubits by 40 cubits by 15 cubits. So he did it in, he gave me the answer in cubits. How good is that? Uh, so what we're saying is the holy place would fit in this building. Uh, in, in, it'd fit in terms of length with a bit at each end and it'd fit with heaps of room on either side in terms of the width. In terms of the height, it, it is double the height. So these, these ceiling panels are false panels. There's a, there's a roof up there, but the, the roof would be double that, the height of this. But that's, that's kind of the scale of this building. Um, and so it's not the biggest thing you've ever heard of in your life, is it? Uh, but that's what we're talking about. Who would enter these gold doors that you can see there? Who would enter into the holy place? Only the priests. So let me show you inside. Let's go inside. Now, this is artistic impression again. But what's, what's the overall impression you get when you look inside? Just gold. Gold everywhere. Um, Chapter 6, verse 22. Solomon overlaid the whole interior with gold. And maybe this artist couldn't cope with that, so he's got the, the cedar beam still showing, because just a whole gold room, it's just a bit dazzling and, 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 and kind of... Anyway, there it is. Gold. Everything is gold. Now, I reckon there is an irony. I don't know if irony is the right word, but... The people invested so much time in the intricate details of this building. And yet they would never see the beauty of what lay inside that temple. Isn't that... It's, it's kind of a, almost a tragedy, isn't it? There's something strange there that they invested, devoted themselves to the building of this temple, and yet they would never see the glorious interior... Uh, that they had spent so much time and money and effort to build. Not even Solomon the king was allowed to enter this building that was the kind of pride and joy of his life. Only the priests. But see those doors at the top of the stairs? So you go up the stairs. They lead to the most holy place. So chapter 6, verse 20 the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 wide, and 20 high. Right, it's a cube. Uh, now, just I think a cubit approximately is like one meter per two cubits. So you're talking 10 by 10 by 10, right, is this kind of scale. So you could almost fit the holy place, in, you know, in, in these two middle bays there, probably not even that, it's probably not even that big, uh, and then 10 metres high as well. That was the most holy place, and it's a cube, 10 by, uh, 20 by 20 by 20. And you think, is that where God would dwell, behind those doors, in the most holy place? Well, only one person got to go in there, and only once a year... And only after offering 
a whole lot of sacrifices for his sin and the sins of the people, the high priest would enter into the most holy place. No one else could enter. But when you go inside, well, we're told what's inside. There's these two kind of cherubim, and I haven't got a picture of them, but they kind of fill most of the space. But the key object in the most holy place is the Ark of the Covenant. So here it is, a box. Uh, And not all that massive a box, but a box. The Ark of the Covenant. Chapter 8, verse 6. The priests then brought the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim, right? So there's cherubim on top of it, but there was also these two big cherubim that Solomon had put in place that were kind of overshadowing the whole thing as well. And you ask the question, is God in that box? Because right? we've gone, gone inner, inner, inner. Is God now in that box? Well, no. Chapter 8, verse 9, there was nothing in the ark. Look at this. Chapter 8, verse 9, there was nothing in the ark except two stone tablets. The two stone tablets Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord had made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. Two stone tablets on which are written the Ten Commandments. That's all. That's because God cannot be contained in a box. Uh, This is not a house for God to live in. This is a house that represents God dwelling amongst his people, but God didn't live in the house. You couldn't find him inside the box. But the temple reminded the people that God had spoken to them and that the way they related to the you know, to the all-powerful God was by God speaking to them and by them listening to the word of God. And the Ten Commandments written on those two stone tablets reminded the people of that relationship. God speaks, we listen. We trust, we obey, uh, we honour him. So the temple didn't contain God, but it did contain his word and it contained his name. Somehow, God's name was attached to this building. Uh, It's called a house for God's name 14 times in chapter 8 alone. The awesome and holy God had chosen this place as a location, a focal point for his name and his reputation. And so the temple was a place where God's people could come and pray to the true God. Even foreigners... Uh, who wanted to come and pray to the true God, could come to this temple and offer their prayers. Here was a place where God's people could come and offer sacrifices. Uh, Sacrifice for sin, to have sins forgiven. Sacrifice of praise and thanks and fellowship. A kind of celebration of what God has done. And notice in Solomon's prayer, he mentions forgiveness six times. It is a place where forgiveness could be sought from God. So an example is in chapter 8, verse 30. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. 
So the amazing part about this temple is this paradox. The holy God, notice he enables, he enables sinful people to come into relationship with him. Uh, sinful people can draw near to the holy God. It's still a mystery, uh, but somehow God has enabled that to take place. God makes it possible for a holy people to dwell amongst the, sorry, for a holy God to dwell amongst the sinful people. He makes his people holy. And God makes it possible for a sinful people to approach the holy God. The temple was a powerful, costly reminder uh, of the privilege of coming before the holy God as his people. Uh, it's a privilege that we must not take lightly. Uh, and the temple, like going to the temple, you would know that what a privilege this is, that the holy God has made a way for me to come into his presence. What a privilege that is. Now, I want to ask you a question. And you've got to talk to the person next to you. If Solomon was to attend the Lakes Church and observe our worship of God, what word do you think would come to mind for him? Right Now, you can, you, you can choose one of those three words, or you might think of another word. Right? But Solomon comes and he observes our worship. What comes to mind for Solomon, do you think? Have a, have a quick word to the person next to you. Okay, so um, who wants to volunteer a word? Excited. Okay, so Solomon would see people coming here and he would be excited. Okay, uh, who thinks he'd be excited? Okay, uh, a, few, a few of us, yeah. Other thoughts? Amanda? Gobsmacked. Okay, why? Why? <laughs> Amazing lack, a lack of ceremony. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he'd be gobsmacked uh, at the lack of ceremony and at, at the kind of the... Just how... Um, personal relationship yeah okay yeah other thoughts yeah wayne okay <laughs> yeah okay so there's been no sacrifices and yet we come in yeah yep impressed okay what we build a bigger building than he did or but I, I, I'm teaching. Oh, I think you. Okay, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, possibly. Yeah. Um. Yeah. 
Ambivalent. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ambivalent. Yeah. I think, yeah, I th- you're, you're capturing the sort of things I was thinking. And so some of Solomon's thinking would probably be a bit misguided because he's got a model of approaching God that requires sacrifice and uh, requires these barriers and walls to be in place because God is inaccessible. And so that, that personal intimacy would be shocking. But I also wonder whether the, the, there's a sense, part of his critique may be right, do you think? Uh, and that is, are we too casual uh, in our approach to God? You know, would Solomon come in at 8.30 and go, why, why are so many empty seats here? Uh, and why, why, why are people so inconsistent? I saw people one week and then the next week they're just not here. What, what's, what's going on? Don't they, don't they love God with all their heart? Don't they recognise the immense privilege of coming before the Holy God to hear his word, to sing his praise? Uh, and so I, I think the temple in its ceremony and so on, ought to critique our society. I love being a laid-back Aussie. Right? I love that I've, you know, 20, 20 years or so, I've almost never tucked my shirt in. You know? uh, and and so, so I just, I, I love that. But we've got to be careful that our laid-back approach to life does not become a laid-back attitude to God. Uh, So we do have a personal relationship with God, and we'll explore that in a moment. But let's not lose sight of his holiness and the utter privilege. And so let's not treat church and worship of God as if it's some sort of optional extra that, you know, I've got a whole lot of things I do in life, and it's just one of the many things I could choose to do this weekend. No, 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 this (laughs) this ought to capture me coming into the presence of God, amongst his people, hearing his words, singing his praises. What better thing in life could there be? And how amazing that I can do it. I can come right into his presence. Why wouldn't I just revel in that opportunity? So Solomon was so excited about the temple he built It really feels like his life was heading towards this point, uh, building a house for God's name. He invested so much personally in this project and he expected the people of God to do the same. In fact, he not only expected it, he demanded it. So he conscripted labourers. He didn't have a sign-up sheet, you know, volunteer for work on the house of God. He said, no, no. You must work on the house of God. Uh, And so he conscripted laborers. He taxed the people. So he didn't have a little box up the back where he said, you know, if if, if God's moving in your heart, put some money. No, no, no. He taxed the people so that they gave towards this project. Uh, And he expected the people to be just as committed to this building project as he was. So what do you think of Solomon's temple? So here's, your, here's a time for you to think. Would you say you're disinterested, ambivalent, or excited about Solomon's temple? Quick word, all right? You don't need to get bogged down, right? Quick word, which of the three would you choose? Solomon's temple. 
Okay, let me, let me share my thoughts. I've got to say I'm ambivalent, right? Now, I want to qualify. I'm not disinterested. Right? I, I'm, I'm interested. And this is God's word. Uh, and there's something wonderful here. And that whole idea of a sinful people coming into the presence of the holy God, that is exciting. And yet there's things about it that I have reservations of. Let me share them with you. I'm not sure. The first one's the one I'm most uncertain about. But this, I have this nagging question, was it necessary? Uh, I'm kinda, I feel nervous about asking that question, but God had already given them a tabernacle, uh, a, a tent. And if you notice, I think what Solomon's done is he's taken the tabernacle from the book of Exodus, the tent that they had in the wilderness up until the time that this temple was built. And he's just gone, right, I'm going to take all the measurements but just ramp them up and make it even more spectacular and more permanent and solid. But the tent functioned perfectly well as a place for drawing near to God. Um, It was the place where God, the holy God, met with the sinful people. God never commanded the people to build a temple. And yet, I have no doubt that it was a, a genuine, heartfelt expression of the devotion of David and Solomon towards God that brought this temple about. So anyway, so there's my first hesitation. Secondly... It wasn't permanent. So Solomon built it with the intention that it would stand forever. A lot of the songs capture that in in Psalms. Chapter 8, verse 13. Solomon prayed to God, I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. But this building would only stand for less than 500 years before the Babylonians came and destroyed it. And not a stone was left standing on another. But even more than those two things, this temple is now obsolete, utterly obsolete. Because Solomon's temple was only ever a shadow, like a kind of a, a model, an inferior model of the real thing that was to come. It was only ever a foretaste. It was never intended to be the thing that lasted forever. And so that brings us on to the real thing, and that is Jesus' temple. And let's just spend a little bit of time here. John's gospel starts with these breathtaking words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh And he made his dwelling among us. Literally, he tabernacled amongst us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the unseen God. We have seen it in the flesh. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. How can a holy God dwell amongst sinful human beings? Well, God became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus. And so in John chapter 2, at the site of Herod's temple, so Herod had rebuilt from the ruins of Solomon's temple, and Jesus makes this outrageous claim. He says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. But then John adds this little comment, the temple he had spoken of was his body. 
Jesus had come knowing that he would fulfill all the hopes and dreams and expectations of the temple. So Hebrews chapter 10 speaks of the Old Testament worship like this. The law, it's only a shadow of the good things to come. The whole tabernacle and then the temple beyond that, it's only a shadow of the good things that are coming. It is not the reality. By one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. See, how does a sinful people come into relationship with the holy God? They are made holy through the blood of Jesus. We are made acceptable to be in the presence of God. That is an amazing thing, isn't it? Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and the full assurance that faith brings. Right? That, that little room that only the priest could go into once a year, the high priest, and only after offering a whole string of sacrifices, now we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. And there's no barrier uh, to us entering. The great paradox of the temple is resolved decisively in Jesus. How is it possible for a sinful people to approach the holy God? Through Jesus' death in our place, his blood spilled for us. And that's what we're going to celebrate in the Lord's Supper. That incredible privilege that has opened up that we can now come into the presence of the holy God. Solomon's temple was his delight. For us, well, for Jesus, the thing he is most excited about is his temple, which is the church. So he says in Matthew 16, I will build my church. This is Jesus' great building project, the church. Um, And he says the gates of Hades will not overcome it. It will remain and grow and build forever. 1 Peter chapter 2, as we come to Jesus, he makes us living stones. Look at this, in the new temple. As you come to him, the living stone, Jesus, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. See, I love this. I love this because Jesus' building project is not about bricks and mortar. It's not about gold and, um, and cedar and big heavy stones it's about people it's about people being drawn in relationship and built up isn't that a so much a better temple so much like because that's what life is about isn't it people and relationship and coming to relationship with the god who made us that's what the focus of jesus temple is not a physical building but people like you and me as we come to Jesus, being built up into God's house. Through Jesus, God has made it possible for God to dwell in us by his spirit. Amazing. And we don't have to go to a central place, but God's spirit lives in us. And so in John's vision of the new creation, in the final chapters of the Bible, last two chapters of the Bible, um, you can read this later yourself, but we're told there is no temple in the city right so it's it's the new jerusalem but we're told there's no temple and you think why no temple and it's because well god freely dwells with his people that that kind of 
barrier between a holy God and sinful people has been overcome for good. Now we're not a sinful people. We are a redeemed and holy people. Uh, We've been made worthy to be in the presence of the holy God. Uh, And listen to how the city is described, right? Gold everywhere and precious stones. But look at the measurements Uh, at one point. He says, this is Revelation 21 verse 16. The city is 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and as high as it is long. Now, what do you notice about that little description? It's a cube. Yes, thank you. Who can think of another cube in the Bible? It's only one, the Holy of Holies. It's the only other cube in the Bible. Um, And what we're told is the New Jerusalem is a cube, and that's because the whole city is now holy. There is no unholy place in the city. Um, The whole heavenly city has become the place where God dwells amongst his people. Now, the numbers are symbolic, but they're huge. And so what I did, I didn't ask John Watson this time, I did it myself. I laid it out on a map of Australia. See that, see that square there? That's the, that's the extent of the city. Now, symbolic, but I just wanted to show you it's huge. Forget WA, they want to disappear anyway. So <laughs> all right, once you move WA out, there's the, there's the heavenly city and it stretches into heaven 2,000 kilometres, over 2,000 kilometres. Right, that's the kind of scale that John is... Uh, speaking of, the heavenly city has become the most holy place where God dwells amongst his people. No barrier, no hindrance between relationship with God. So I watched, I watched the coronation service yesterday, part of it, because I was here amongst God's people earlier, uh, the prayer and praise night, but I watch it with a sense of ambivalence. Even the church... Westminster Abbey, it's no doubt beautiful and intricate. Its builders, like Solomon, were wanting to capture the grandeur and glory and holiness of God. And they've kind of, they've kind of done that. Like, I've never been in one of these buildings, so I can't really comment. You know, I've been to Sydney Cathedral or, you know, or whatever. So please forgive me. I, 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 I but... It seems to me many church buildings have this same goal. They want to be a physical representation of the glory and the holiness of God. And so much time and money and devotion has been spent constructing and building those buildings. Now, many people have even died in building these buildings. And for all their good intentions, these buildings miss the point. They miss the point. In fact, they, 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 they kind of mislead us of where the real action is. They're copying an obsolete version. Solomon may have been captivated by that sort of building, but not Jesus. Jesus is captured by the church. He is off the scale excited. He gave his life for the church. Uh, and so that's why we, this, this building is a great place to gather, but he is not the temple of God. I want to point that out because 
it does feel like sometimes you treat this as the holy of holies. You know, you, you don't come too close, right? So what I want, to, want you to do when you come next week is draw near. You can actually, you can actually come. There's, no, there's nothing holy about this place. Even what's behind this curtain, right? Uh, it's just a drum kit. <laughs> but only Tim is allowed in there uh, once a week. Uh, no, 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 no. So this is, so this is just a place to gather but wow, what a, what a great function this building has, isn't it? To gather to hear God, to gather with his people, to build the church, which is not the building, but it's us, the people. That's the church. And Jesus laid the foundation through his death, his bloodshed, uh, and he has made us holy in God's sight. Wow. And Jesus is utterly captivated by building his church. It will last forever. And so I want to ask, final question, how would you describe your commitment to Jesus' great building project? Disinterested, ambivalent, or excited? He wants you to be at that end of the scale, excited. Right? That's what he is. He is excited. Um, and Jesus doesn't want forced labor. Right? He he doesn't want people who begrudgingly go, all right, okay, I'll build the church. He wants, by his spirit, to capture our hearts so that, we're, so that what is his delight is our delight. He wants a people who are willing and eager. And he doesn't want us to give towards the church because of a tax, you know, a tithe or something like that. He doesn't want us to kind of go, oh, yeah, all right, I've got, I've got to pay my church tax. Now he wants us to give cheerfully, generously, with hearts that have been stirred and changed and transformed to take on Jesus' priorities. He wants his building project to become ours. Uh, and will you pray with me to that end? Let's pray. God our Father, hallowed be your name. You are the holy God. You have crowned your King Jesus, the good and gracious King, worthy of all praise. And Father, we thank you that this King laid down his life for our forgiveness to draw us into relationship with you. Please forgive us our sins. Uh, please make us holy as you promised to do through the blood of Jesus. And please capture our hearts with your priorities. May we commit to your church, play our part in it, not because we must, but because we want to. Fill us with joy as we serve the Lord Jesus, whose service is perfect freedom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.